You know, uh, I don't know if they, they don't have them quite the same way, but you used to walk into the mall. And uh, if you weren't familiar with the mall, where's the first place you're going? The map, that's thank you, right? And the map has that you are here sign. And uh, the thing is about that is that you already know where you are. You just walked in here, right? You are here. What really matters in the, the map is where you are relative to the thing you're looking for, right? You got to get a lay of the land. And uh, I think because this has fallen out of favor or whatever, uh, young people just roam the mall until they find what they're looking for. And so they don't know how to read maps either. Maybe that's a product of GPS or whatever. That's not where I'm going this morning. Uh, but I, I think it's, uh, it's important to realize that uh, when you look around, I've been asking the last few weeks as we walk through Jude, like sort of, you know, you put your finger in the air and you're taking a sense of where the wind is blowing. And I've asked you how you feel like culture is moving. And so that question really is asking you, relative on the map, and you, you plant that little you are here marker in the sand somewhere, and then relative to the rest of uh, culture and life in general, wh- where is that falling in terms of, um, if, you, if you want to look at it this way, the arc of morality? And for the most part, it seems to be a pretty, pretty negative view of how things are going. And that's not necessarily a surprise to me, and it's not, should be a surprise to you. That's why we're walking through this series in Jude, talking about contending for the faith. But the you are here marker, I think, is important for you to, to, to realize, first of all, that um, every, every culture uh, that has ever existed, every kingdom that has ever come, regardless of how powerful it is, has a beginning and it has an end. And uh, irregardless of um, irregardless, that's not a word, regardless of whatever happens in that particular nation, the, the truth is that the, the, the knowledge of God it must be per- perpetuated generation to generation. And whether or not that's happening is actually the measurement of, of um, contending for the faith. And so if you, if you look out at culture and it looks like it's, it's, it's going into the toilet, and it is, uh, do not take that as your measurement of whether or not God is being faithful to bring people along. In fact, it should be your cue that it's getting even darker and so that the light of Christ should shine even brighter amidst that chaos and tear. And so um, I'm just reminding you this morning that uh, we're, we're focusing on the need to perpetuate the knowledge of God from generation to generation. It is a blessing to both um, give the next generation the word of God, to warn them of a judgment about not being inside of uh, uh, God's covenant and to um, testify to God's faithfulness even when God brings judgment on the world. So there's, there's three elements there. Let me say that again. The, the first is to just perpetuate the knowledge of God, who he is, what he has done, um, his character, his faithfulness. And we do that by telling the next generation the word of God what he has spent, what he's spoken, how he's revealed himself through uh, Christ. And we also warn them of a coming judgment. We, we warn them that there will be a judgment based on your faithfulness to that word. Okay, now that's an important element, which we'll qualify in just a minute. And then the third part of that is that even in spite of the coming judgment and the revelation of God himself, that God is still faithful in the midst of judgment to be gracious to a people. Okay, so there are, are three elements to this this morning. And so when you, when you, when you look at the lay of the land and, and you're asking, where, where am I on the map? You should be able to say that I am here and even if culture is declining, that we are planting the flag so that the next generation can know who God really is. And they're not learning it from the world and trying to absorb the knowledge of God from 
who the world says that God is. Because the world is giving a totally different message. It's a false message, but it has the same promise. Okay? If you want to be um, happy, if you, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want safety in life, if you want um, you, you know, actual to experience life, here's how it's done. And the reality is that buying into that message because the church is failing to say what's true is causing people to have a, a generational disconnect. There's a gap between one generation to the next, which is why the decline is never, it's not a, it's not a slow line. It's not like that. It's not a, it's not a slant. It's a, it's a parabola. If you remember your, your, uh, your math terms, mathematics, right? So the, 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 the curve increases as it gets uh, closer to the bottom. And so the steepness of it is going to be a, a, a disconnect because one generation misses the next. And it only takes one generation for it to go from something to nothing. Okay? With that being said, let me pray for our time in the Word this morning. We're going to be in verses 12 through I'll hope for 17, but it's probably going to be 16. And, um, and we'll get through it this morning and see what the, the Lord would have for us. So, Father, um, we ask uh, that you would um, come with um, our, our humility this morning and speak a word to build us up, that you would um, help us to see what is true in um, a chaotic world that's blaring messages at Um, not just younger generations, but all generations, enticing a people to walk away from your faithfulness. So, God, I just pray that you would use um, this time to um, help our faith, strengthen um, our church, and um, by your spirit that you would um, help us to see what is true and right and good, and that it would be a blessing to um, your people, and that we would glorify you in what is done and said. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so uh, here we go. The verses will be up on the screen here, and uh, I'll read them, and then uh, we'll just take them piece by piece here. So it says, these are, so just a reminder here, he's, he's been addressing uh, the church. Remember, this is a letter to the church, not a letter to the world. Why is that an important distinction? Because if he was writing a letter to the world, there would be much to say about um, sin, and he would focus totally on that, and, and there wouldn't be a, a call, a need, a, an impetus to actually be faithful. So he, he's reminding a people of God that they are the people of God, and that has a certain character to it. And so he's been pointing out what judgments um, come because of unfaithfulness to um, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So he's going on to describe um, the nature of false beliefs, okay? And so he says this, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, their shepherds feeding themselves, their waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay. So uh, there was some themes there. I, I hope you caught them. But essentially, you need to know that um, he's summarizing what it is uh, that the, the din, okay, the, the, the noise of the world is speaking out uh, an idea, a worldview. 
And in Scripture, this is just called a spirit. Uh, a worldview is a spirit. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But there is a, um, a coming uh, to fruition of the instability what's held out as a promise of, of fulfillment and truth. So there's, there's fruit promised, and by putting your um, trust in whatever this message is, um, it's an unstable kind of message, and it's resulting in people inviting judgment on themselves. And so the, that element of the world can be summarized in um, the, the specific mission of the enemy of the people of God. So in John uh, 10, 10, we, uh, we get the... Uh, the plan of the enemy is this, simply, well, if I can get it to move, okay, there we go, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Steal, kill, and destroy. Now, um, if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I want to talk to you about the sound of that din and what it means, okay? So buckle up for just a minute. If I was going to try to steal, kill, and destroy the people of God, how, how, what could I do to make that happen? If I'm, if I'm the enemy of God's people, if I'm Satan, what would that look like? And what is it that he's actually after stealing, killing, and destroying? Well, he, he wants to steal the, uh, the life and the inheritance of the people of God. He wants to, to kill the next generation from faithfulness, and he wants to destroy God's kingdom and works, okay? And so how would he do that? Well, he could start by erasing fundamental distinctions of identity, starting with gender, just basic science and facts. He would invite confusion on any kind of moral absolutes, especially about the sanctity of life and the image of God in every person. And innocence. Isolate people based on superficial categories and call it tolerance and inclusivity. I would create instability in the future about whether or not this planet can even support life. To discourage depopulation and degrowth, and to limit people from working hard to achieve in the world. I would call mutilation care and help. I would confuse other people about what gender norms are so that they begin to look for other ways to express themselves. You would murder an entire uh, population, another generation in the womb without question or restraint. I would incentivize laziness and lack of development of skills for anything. I would create a preference for winning a kind of lottery rather than working hard. I would reward uh, idol worship with vacuous, transient kinds of um, culture. I would teach people not to think critically about anything but accept whatever they're told from talking heads. I would medicate every detail of life. I would interfere with natural processes of maturity. I would perpetuate adolescence and irresponsibility as long as possible while at the same time giving choices of much consequence at uh, a point where they're not able to be handled. I would invest in agencies of uh, uh, cultural demise. I would rail against law, order, and justice. I would make people hopeless and helpless. I would teach them that the soul is non-existent. I would tell them that this life is all that there is and to live for pleasure. I would tell them that anybody that holds old ideas are traditional and they're a boomer and not to be, not to be trifled with. 
I would idolize emotional experiences. I would decriminalize drug use. I would normalize sexual exploitation and pornography. I would stigmatize marriage, having family separate from sex, and marriage creating an epidemic of abortions, orphans, and one-parent households. I would deconstruct the family. I would mock and belittle parents who actually parent. I would teach the achievement of of, uh, any person is a racist work. I would normalize depression and suicide as the way out of it. I would bombard media and social media to manipulate people's self-image. I would put foolish leaders into high-ranking positions. I would destroy legacies. I would judge the past and edit history. I would create a, a booming subculture where abuse, trauma, and victimization are entertainment and a necessary evil. If that is ringing any kind of bells this morning... The intent of that is to steal, kill, and destroy. It is literally to cut off a generation, both physically, mentally, and spiritually, to despise the word of God, to, 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 to hate and destroy what God has designed for life. So what do we do with that kind of message that's out in the world? Well, we need to look at what God's word has said it would produce, and see the, the counterfeit for what it is. And so um, what Jude is giving us a look at this morning is how, how, it's, how to steal, kill, and destroy come to fruition based on kind of false beliefs like these and how they come in. So let's look at beginning in uh, verse 12 here. It says this, that uh, the, people, the people that hold a certain um, doctrine, a, a kind of belief, are called the spirits of the world, Okay? And, it's not, and we're told to test the spirits. That doesn't mean if you have a, an Ebenezer, Scrooge kind of night that you give that, that spirit a pop quiz. When we're told to test the spirits, it means to, to question uh, the, the confession of what they, they bring about. And we do that by, not by literally the, the words that are spoken, but the fruit of what they produce. Can I say that again? Because, uh, well, let me, let me just read you out of, um, uh, out of John. It says... Uh, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then he goes on to talk about those that won't confess that. And that's an important idea, not just that Jesus Christ came as a human being, but that he came as a human being and therefore uh, that sin is a problem and had to be dealt with by Jesus coming in the flesh. And so there's a lot of implications of this, but every spirit that does not confess that and that the fruit of following the flesh is a problem, is, is, uh, is, he says, is antichrist. And many false spirits have gone out into the world. And so we are to test these spirits by the fruit of what, what comes out of them, okay? And so he, uh, he being Jude now, is going to give us three sets of, or two sets of three. So he, he likes to say things in threes. There's six total illustrations that he uses here, and they all have a sort of a common theme, which is instability. They do not give what they promise, they do not give what they promise. So that every, every fruit that's supposedly out there, if you believe this, if you trust in this, if you act this way, here's what's going to be good for you. And then as soon as you put your trust in that and you pursue it, it leaves you empty-handed or it leaves you destroyed. Does it make sense? Okay, so he's, he's, sort, of, he's sort of giving a, a truly, truly moment here. When Jesus says that, he means really, really listen. So he, he's giving a, a, an emphatic uh, example, two groups of three and here they are. There are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Um, this is um, uh, sort of a debatable translation here. It's, it's useful to us in that it, it represents a, 
an idea that we can get our, an illustration that we can kind of understand that a hidden reef for a ship would be a problem, right? It would tear into the hole if you didn't see that it was coming. But this word is, uh, it can be translated a couple different ways. And the other way that it can be translated is spot or blemish. A, a, uh, and it has to do with not just like a, a stain, it has to do with a moral kind of a blemish, an, a blame, if you will. And so Second um, Peter is a parallel um, to the entire book of Jude. So 2 Peter 2, just scribble that down for yourself this morning. 2 Peter 2, you will see all of the outworking of everything that Jude has said in 2 Peter. And for a long time, people thought that um, Jude copied Peter and wrote his letter. Well, they found evidence that, that Jude's letter predates Peter, and so it's the other way around. Peter copied Jude. But he says in this same little portion, referring to the same thing, he says, these are spots and blemishes in your love feast. And I prefer that translation because it makes more sense. And uh, so, so we'll talk about that and, and why that's a problem in um, the love feast. So we have the, the, the six examples or, or two sets of three. And the first one is the hidden reefs or the blemishes. And here's the idea. When the church is gathered together and there's somebody that is in the midst and what they do in the light, what they're unashamed of is part of the moral fabric of the gathering of the church. Can I say that? The, 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 the illustration that Jude's giving and what Peter's actually pointing to is that when the church used to gather, they would have a love feast. They would have a, a full-on potluck meal, go Baptists, right? They'd have a potluck meal, and it was called the love feast, and it would, it would culminate in the sharing of communion in the bread and the wine, and that was um, how, how the church gathered after worship. And, and so... Um, what he's saying is that when you get together, there are people that are shamelessly out and out uh, defiling the sin, and you're allowing them to be a corruption. They are a spot and a blemish in and amidst the love feast. That's the illustration that he's giving here. Well, why is that a problem? Because the testimony of the church is that that's who we used to be. That's who we used to be, but we're redeemed from that sin, and we're made new and washed and sanctified. And so when, when somebody is in amongst the midst, and they're affirmed and confirmed, and we're just fellowshipping and having a meal together like everything's great, he's saying that is a, that's a moral stain on the testimony of who God is and what he's done. So that's, that's the first kind of um, temptation, right? You can belong to the church, but live totally openly in sin. And this is why um, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's so upset that they have this guy in amongst their midst who's in out-and-out uh, -out sexual sin, and nobody's doing anything about it. And he's like, you guys think that you're celebrating grace, but you're bringing reproach on the church. So anybody that thinks that they can live that way is, is being tempted to believe something false. And it will lead to, if you want to think about it this way now, it's a hidden reef. It will shipwreck your faith to think that you can live in sin and, and be affirmed or confirmed in the church. Then he gives an illustration about shepherds. Shepherds are supposed to be those who watch out and care for the sheep. And he says these shepherds come and they feed themselves and they do it without fear. Well, a shepherd that only feeds himself is, is, is a selfish shepherd, right? He doesn't care anything for the benefit of the actual sheep. And, and so the idea here is that he takes from the, the people of God, but doesn't give anything back. And it doesn't have to be somebody, don't only think, is this a false pastor? Okay, he's writing to the church, the congregation, the people of God. So are, are you somebody that thinks that you can only consume what, what, has, what, what God has offered in the people, in the grace that we get to experience here? And, and you are a selfish kind of person, and you come in as somebody that belongs, but you only consume 
Well, they feed only themselves. And so they, they, they promise help and protection and, and, and giving back, and they only take, they only remove from the congregation. And then he goes to uh, this one, this waterless clouds. Um, there's a good thing about rain, right? You get a nice dark rain cloud and it comes in and it waters the ground, right? But when a, 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 a cloud comes in and it only blocks out the sun, then it's not good for anything, okay? It has a promise of some kind of, of fulfillment, some kind of fruit coming from it that it would water the earth. And he says, these are, these are people that come in and they're, they, they promise something, but they don't give it, okay? They're, they're promising fulfillment, but it's not there, okay? It's, and they're swept along by wind. So get the sense that they're, they move about. They're unstable in that sense. And so they, they have a sort of testimony of fruit. This is a, a distinct in, distinction from the barren tree in just a second. They are promising rain. They look like rain clouds, but they're not. They don't have anything in them, and they're swept about, okay? And then he moves to a similar but a, a distinct kind of um, fruitlessness of these trees. He says these are trees in late autumn when something should be bearing fruit, and he says they're twice dead. So here's the thing. It came through the season of fruitfulness this tree has, and it didn't produce any fruit in the season of fruitfulness, and then when it's checked later on, it's shown that it didn't produce then, and it doesn't have a root at all. It says twice uprooted. So here's the idea. It's not even that they ever professed any kind of fruit. They never promised any fruit. They just came in as a barren tree. Okay, and they were they were brought in in the community, and and they were accepted. So these are people that are just barren in sin, and they they should produce something because they're people that bear the image of God, and they're among the people of God. They are a fruit tree, but they, yet they produce nothing. They're twice dead and uprooted, and they're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. If you haven't been to an ocean or, or been there after, um, you know something like a storm has come in and it creates a lot of foam and, and chaos and it leaves all that gunk on the beach, okay? There's a lot of action, a lot of activity, and it leaves nothing, okay? When James talks about being somebody that, that lives by faith and has conviction, he says people that are unstable, they, they don't have a set mind, they don't really trust in God, they're unstable in all their ways, they are waves tossed by the wind, this is the, the same idea. They're unstable. There's nothing to put your trust in. They, they, they're too minded about the world. They have a foot in the world and a foot in the church. They're waves that leave only foam. There's no substance to them, okay? There's a recurring theme here, right? Unstability, a promise of some substance, but leaving nothing. They cast up the foam of their own shame, and then he goes to this wandering stars. Stars are useful for navigation, right? They have a fixed position. And God has set that position. He said, even in creation, he put the stars in their position to govern the times and the seasons so people could know when things were happening and they could navigate ships and, and, and even to the Christ child by um, the star that appeared in the north, right? Um, so all of these things are good. But if you have a, a, a wandering star, a shooting star, it's a bright flash. It distracts people for a moment, but it's not going anywhere. It's not something that you should attach your... Um, attention to or your direction to. Does that make sense? And so somebody might come in with a lot of gusto and a lot of um, pizzazz and they promise something and you go, I ought to follow what it is that they're doing. They seem to have a lot of energy. And you attach to that and they lead you astray. They're wandering stars. They're useless for nothing and will lead you to destruction and they will eventually fizzle out into dust, okay? And then he says about all of these things for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So these things are um, 
two groups of three to elevate the problem of unstable kinds of promises. The, 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 the din of the world, all of the things that I just talked about, talking to the people uh, that are in uh, the community of the church and thinking that we, we ought to incorporate some of this or maybe we should so that we can uh, navigate the world and have fulfillment in both ways. So hidden reefs promise false safety in shallow waters. Selfish shepherds say that they will provide, but they only steal. Waterless clouds are false promises of refreshment, but they're not even good for shade. Fruitless trees, even though they're given time, they have no root and they will never give any fruit. Wild waves cause chaos and they leave nothing behind. Only destruction and foam and wandering stars cause confusion and distraction from what is true and fixed. So all of these things exist in our world. And they come in all kinds of different formats and all kinds of different promises that entice us away from what is true and what God has promised. And so he's going to move to then what we ought to do instead and look at the testimony of what God has done through his people in the past. And so he moves to the example of Enoch. And so he says here, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So here's the testimony that... uh, that God has reserved for himself a people who will be faithful and also they will testify to something. And so uh, we need to learn a little bit about the genealogy of Adam. You probably hopefully heard of Enoch. Enoch is the one who walked with God and then he was not, okay? And so um, why was Enoch um, favored? Why was he taken? Why did he not have to see death? Well, because we're told that he was faithful in God's eyes. So here, if we look at the genealogy of Adam, goes something like this. Adam had Cain and Abel. And we looked at the example of Cain a few weeks ago, and Cain, we know, because of his lack of faith in his offering when he brought it, practicing a religion of his own making, he killed his brother Abel. And so Abel is replaced by Seth. And from Cain, we get a lineage that um, goes from Cain to Enoch, Erod, Mahujael, Methushael, and then Lamech. Okay? Now, Keep track here. So we had Adam, who's one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And because he has an Enoch in his line, Jude is careful to qualify the Enoch he's talking about. This is Enoch, who is seventh in line from Adam. Well, we know that Enoch must belong over here to the righteous line that is going under Seth. So we had Seth, who had Enosh, who had Kenan, who had Mahalalel. That's a fun one if you just want to say that sometime. Mahalalel, who had Jared, who had Enoch. And we're told in Genesis that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And then in Hebrews um, uh, 11, we're told that by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death. And he could not be found because God had taken him away, for before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So here's, the, here's, the, here's what God has done. If there was two lines. There was a promise made to, to Adam in the garden from your seed, from the seed of the woman, that there will be produced one who crushes sin and redeems the people, right? And so they thought that was going to be Cain, but Cain forfeited that promise. It goes passed down through Abel, and then eventually we get to Enoch, and Enoch is somebody who is faithful. And how is his faithfulness measured? How does he even get to be faithful? Because every generation before him passed on the knowledge of who God is and what God has done. And by the time it gets to Enoch, we're told that Enoch walked with God. And because he was faithful to walk with God, that, 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 that term there means that he, was, he acknowledged all that he could about who God was. 
And so because of his um, relationship with God, God does not um, make him see death, but takes him directly in spirit to heaven. Now, um, this, is, uh, this is where I've got to give a, a little uh, side trail here, okay? So um, the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Enoch prophesied something. And um, what we're told here in Jude is that the prophecy of Enoch is that there was a coming judgment, that the, 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 uh, Christ will come with uh, his holy ones and bring judgment on all the unrighteous. But there's also another testimony that Enoch gave. So according to Josephus, Enoch wrote down on two obelisks. You know what those are? Those are like the, the, the tall pyramids, okay? On two obelisks, all of um, the knowledge of God, everything that had been passed down to him, and he left it in the land of Midian, okay? And he wrote down the history of the world, of creation, up until the point that he had lived. And he left those in the land of Midian. Well, if you don't know, after Enoch comes Methuselah. What do you know about Methuselah? Does anybody he is the oldest guy ever, okay? He lives for like 900 years, okay? Here's the meaning of Methuselah's name. It means something like ready and an arrow, okay? But in the, the, the word pictures of the Hebrew, the Aramaic, it means his death shall bring. His death shall bring. At the end of Methuselah's life, he gets to see um, his son have Noah, Noah brings the flood. Noah's name means rest. So here's, here's what the, the prophecy of Enoch does twofold. He, he leaves a testimony of who God is. God sends um, a judgment and a flood, but he doesn't do it for a very long time. He gives a very long time for the lifetime of Methuselah because at the end of Methuselah's life, he's going to bring judgment, which is exactly what Enoch is said to have prophesied that the Lord is coming with thousands of his holy ones to bring judgment on the unrighteous. So the promise of him coming with the holy ones is always a picture of judgment. That's what's, what we're told happens in the flood. That's what we're told happens in what's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a recurring thing in, um, in the history of the world. And it's what we're looking forward to is the last day of the Lord when Christ returns. And we're told that he will be accompanied with all of the saints that are now in heaven. In the book of Revelation, we're told there are martyrs who sit beneath the altar and they ask, when, when, Lord, when will you come? And he says, for a little while longer, wait and be patient. And then he's going to come with, and the, the question is, is the holy ones there angels or saints? Yes, he's coming with all of them. He's coming with the armies. He's coming with every person that has been faithful, that's been taken to heaven, and he's coming to bring judgment on the righteous for their good and on the unrighteous for their ungodliness. So there's the promise, okay? Now, here's what happens. Let me finish the story. So Enoch had put these, the history of who God is on these obelisks. The flood comes, and later on, guess who finds that? Moses. Moses has the history of who God is, and he records that for us. Mo Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? The first five books are all Moses, and he gets this history probably from, from Enoch. Now, I'm not going to die on that hill, but it is an important thought because to pass the knowledge of, the, of who God is and his faithfulness about everything that he's done, everything that he's said, and even in the presence of judgment, to make sure the knowledge of God is passed along. And then what the testimony of the line of Seth. 
in the line of Enoch, eventually into Noah, is this. Even in judgment, God is faithful if your trust is in him. So that when he, when he brings judgment on the world, if you're in Christ, Noah was preserved in the ark. The ark is a type of Christ, okay? So when God brings judgment on the world, to be sheltered in God, to have faith in what he said, is to avert or to, to, to um, be sheltered from the judgment. I, I can't say it another way than that. And the judgment is, is promised. It is coming. There is a fixed day when the Lord will turn, known only to him. And so you need to look at that and say, Every deed will be accounted for. Every word must be um, uh, brought to judgment under whether or not it's faithful to, to uh, who God has said he is. So we get this testimony. Let me get over here. Okay. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all to convict all the godly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. What is he really harping on here? Ungodliness. He's emphatic about it. He takes it to the third. It's like holy, holy, holy. Okay? He says, but it's the other direction. All of the unholy, unholy, unholy kinds of people, all the people in their deeds, what they do, what they've spoken, all of that is going to be accounted for. So do not make the mistake of thinking that the judgment just simply passes over because of some kind of inherited genealogical knowledge of God. That's a... Students, look right at me. You cannot inherit the faith of God from your parents. You need to know that. There's no, there's no bloodline that gives you the right to assuage God's judgment. In Mark 8, 38, it says this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in the adulterous and sinful generation. Get the idea that as culture is declining and steeping downwards, in the midst of that, you must have a testimony. Well, what is it? That you're, you're either ashamed of the word of God or you're not, okay? You either trust in it and hold fast to it or you listen to the message of the world that says, well, here's how you can actually be happy. Here's what fruitfulness can actually look like. Here's what, okay? So there's a promise of fulfillment over here. It's unstable, and if you buy into that, you've been ashamed of the word of God. And the Son of Man will also be ashamed of that person, that one, when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angel. So listen, judgment is always about faith in the word of God. It is always about faith in the word of God in the midst of a rising tide of hostility. So I'm not going to be the, the, the prognosticator. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, as far as I know. So I'm not saying that Jesus is coming soon, but you should live like Jesus is coming soon. Okay? Why? Because when he does, he is calling to judgment all things. And he's bringing all of the holy ones who did hold fast to the faith in the word with him to judge the ungodly for those who did not believe, who reviled the word of God, who did not trust in it. Okay? So, we are the people of God now. Church, hear me. We are to warn of a coming judgment, but also to testify to the graciousness of God. He gives, he gives a long life of Methuselah. He's going to tarry for as long as possible until the fullness of everyone who will be redeemed has come in. Why? Why? Why is he waiting so long? So that you can come to repentance. 
He's, he's waiting a long time, but when he comes, his death shall bring judgment. And, and here it is. In Joel chapter 1, it says this, Hear this, O elders, and give ear. All who dwell in the land, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Okay, he asks this question. Hey, hey, people of God, in your lifetime, has God ever judged wickedness? And you're like, yeah, I think I've seen that. Or has he been good to you in, in spite of, you know, your unfaithfulness? Yeah, that's happened before. He says, if that's happened, tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. And after that passage in Joel, he goes on to talk about the locusts that came. And then whatever those locusts came, there was another set of locusts that came and ate all that and all that. And then, but he says, and then after those days, that the Lord is good. So that even in spite of judgment, that those who trust in the word of the Lord will find him faithful. So in spite of what we see and what we feel as the encroaching like morality and like how do we get through this, that is um, not cause for us to just be depressed and like throw our hands up and think that we can't make it. We're testifying to the fact that that is our call to trust in God's word. Do not make the mistake though. Ephesians 5, this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, no greedy person that is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no media personality, let no promise of riches and goodness, no happiness in some love affair deceive you that you can live a way that's contrary to the word of God and that you will inherit anything from God. Do not be deceived by empty words, by false promises, because of these things, because of those kinds of behaviors, because of those who trust in them, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. So do not be partakers with them. That's that, that's that blemishes and spots amidst, amidst the love feast. The church ought not to have anything to do with those who take part and buy into those kinds of worldly ideas and arguments. Here's my last word. I've got to find it, though. Proverbs 22. Somewhere around here. There it is. Proverbs 22.6 says this. Train a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. This sounds like a really simplistic, um, if you teach your kid about who God is, then he'll never mess that up. And true and not true. The next generation is not guaranteed. But here's what God promises. He says, the words that I tell you today, put them in your mouth. And teach them to your kids. When you rise up and when you lie down, when you're walking by the wayside. When they ask, why are we here? What is, what's going on in the world? You testify to who God is. We were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed us. He's faithful in spite of the fact we were in Egypt. If you're making the measurement about how good things are, and you look around in America and you go, it doesn't look very good. Every time that you get to testify to God's faithfulness, it's because it doesn't look very good. Are you tracking with that? And your job is to put that truth in their mouth. That's what this word teach means. It means to put it in their mouth so that their testimony is your testimony. So that they will not depart from it. So they'll hold fast to what is true and what is right. That even if it looks dark and bleak, I know that the, that the God of all is my God. And he's faithful. And I will be safe from judgment in him. One generation must teach the next. 
This does not just mean if you have kids to teach them. That's the minimum. That's like the very basic concrete application of this. Yeah, if you have kids, teach them who God is. What it really means, though, is that you, church, congregation of Israel, people of God, your life is a testimony to the next generation. Put that in their mouth so that they, make, they say, I saw what the generation before me did and they passed it to me. That is how you put that in their mouth. You don't force feed a Bible into their mouth. You do it by living it so that they consume that. And then that is their testimony. God's covenant faithfulness is always available. That's, he says, I, I'm faithful to, from one generation for a thousand generations to those who love me and keep covenant. That means as soon as his name is called upon, even in the midst of judgment, he is faithful. So here's the last word, right? Jeremiah, I said this was the last one, but I got you because I'm a preacher. So Jeremiah 18, wait, I don't have that one, but I'll read it to you, okay? So Jeremiah 18 says this. I'll read it to you and then I'll give you the Shema here. Jeremiah 18, seven. At any time, I might announce that a nation or a kingdom will be uprooted or torn down and destroyed. God has the prerogative to snuff America out like that tomorrow. And he could. If he, if he decrees that in his sovereign wisdom, it will be. No one can, can, can stay his hand, okay? He says, if I announce that, whether or not you or I know that doesn't make a difference. He says, if I announce it. And, but if that nation that is warned turns from its evil, then I will relent of the disaster I had planned. When God looked upon the world and saw the wickedness of men and that every inclination of their heart was evil, he pronounced a judgment. Methuselah. His death shall bring judgment. But for, any, for, any, for anyone that would, at any time, during that, if they would be faithful, he will save them. So even in the midst of a coming judgment, the Lord is faithful. Older generation, the question is, if righteousness is not inherited simply because you had a child, but it's given by the testimony of your life, are you giving the next generation a blessing of knowing God? Of telling them there is a judgment of right and wrong, but also testifying to God's faithfulness in that. And younger generation... You, you have a lot to contend with. But you can't count on the righteousness of your family or of your church or of anyone else. You have to put the testimony of God into your own mouth and find it sweet. And that way you will not depart from it. So I'm going to invite up this morning the, the band. We're going to end this morning with this truth in Deuteronomy. You can replace the word Israel here with the people of God. Israel, that, that translation is literally the ones who strive with God. Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, he is alone. There's none like him. There's no other place that you can find trust or refuge from the world. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. 
And you talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That means in the work of your hands, whatever you put your hand to should be righteousness and reflect this truth. And putting on your heads, yeah, they, they actually do that. But the point is what you think about, the way that you approach the world and how you, you, you move through it should reflect these truths. They should be frontlets between your eyes and you should write them on the doorposts of your house, your household, your gates shall testify that the Lord is our God and he is alone. 